Hello, everybody. Hi. It is so nice to be back with you for another episode of Living Jewishly with Rabbis Rachel and Marcus. We're going to live Jewishly with you today. So exciting to be here again. It is a wonderful day. It's actually gotten a little warmer here in the Twin Cities, which is uh, a little bit nice. Uh, and uh, Well, yeah, I think you have to clarify what is warmer for the Twin Cities. It's oh, like in the 20s. <laughs> it's still in the 20s, but it's not negative zero. So negative below zero, not negative. I don't think there is a negative zero. Well, is there zero? Is there negative zero? What's real? What's On our real? next podcast. <laughs> Advanced Mathematics with Rabbis Rubenstein. Oh, God. <laughs> That would be a very short podcast. Very short. We need a lot of guest speakers for that one. <laughs> so it's been a really nice weekend for me. I set up a surround sound speaker system, which is always, as a music lover, has been a dream of mine to set up surround sound speakers in my basement. Uh, we can. We, my dad, I, should, I was going to say we built these new speakers to make myself seem better, but I'm really uh, challenged with the construction element. Uh, my dad rebuilt these speakers, and we were able to put up a system in our basement, which makes me really happy and makes my partner both in podcasting and in life and in rabbying not so happy. Is that the order? I'm your first your podcast partner, then your life partner, then your rabbi partner? At least in this situation. <laughs> my whole life is compartmentalization. Sounds good. Yeah, I tend to like quiet and peaceful calm. So the surround sound system with the new subwoofer and the heavy bass has been a fun adjustment for me, but I love you. And so that's what love is, compromise. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. I brought her many, many cups of coffee for the surround sound system. <laughs> so it all works out at the end. Anyway, What's up with you, Rabbi Rachel? What is up with me? While well, my family was visiting, my parents and my brother Corey came to visit for a little over a week, which was really, really nice. My brother lives out in California in the Bay Area, and he's just the absolute best and was visiting my parents in Chicago and decided to come and uh, come visit us. for. He was going to come for a weekend and then decided to work remotely from Minnesota for a week. So we got a, a bonus week, and it was really really fun. It was great. We uh, navigated the snowstorm together and uh, had a great time. Of course, in the course of setting up the surround sound speaker system in the middle of a blizzard, uh, we knocked out the internet for two days, so nobody was happy about that one. It's true, but thank God for your dad, who literally drove to us in a snowstorm because he knows that we cannot survive Because he knew. Because he knew that would not and be good for anybody. Somehow, miraculously, like traced the DSL cable. He's amazing and was able to fix the internet. So thank you, thank you, thank you to your dad, Jack. He's incredible. Thank you, Dr. Jack Rubin, <laughs> <laughs> for all your help in our lives. Rabbi Rachel, why are we talking about this? Well, as many of you know, who are listening in the United States of America, this upcoming Monday is Martin Luther King Day. So what there's always, I mean, it's always a good time to talk about the incredible inspiration uh, that is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but what better time than now? Yeah, I, I think for me, you know, this is a holiday that is often skipped over. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a, just an extra day off, uh, similarly the way we treat like Labor Day, Veterans Day, all the, all the days where we should probably be thinking about 
what they actually mean, but we just kind of skip it over. Uh, the thought of this man is so is so very very inspiring, and and so few of us kind of really delve deeply into his thought and use this day and this time to think about the lessons that Dr. Martin Luther King taught, especially because you know many people just see him as a civil rights leader. Um, uh, fighting for equality, which he certainly was, but that's not all he was. He was also a faith leader, and, and his theology and his thought goes way beyond a single fight uh, for, for, for black people to be equal in the society. Um, there is much more uh, to his thought that needs to be discussed and has a lot of ramifications on our life. Um, I was curious about it two or three years ago. Uh, I was curious about Martin Luther King, and I decided to... Uh, read a, a book on him. I was actually asked to speak at an interfaith Martin Luther King rally. So, of course, me knowing very little about Martin Luther King, I started reading uh, uh, one of his books, of uh, famous books of sermons, Strength to Love, and it tremendously inspired me. Um, and I think for that reason, uh, and it, I want to bring it to each and every one of us, because it really transformed my Judaism and sort of transformed the way I look at religion and, and my own life and, and a lot of things. I think more of us uh, American Jews probably need to uh, sort of hear this message at this time. Yeah, I mean, I think as people of faith, we are inspired by other faith leaders, whether or not they are Jewish. We are inspired by people who find inspiration and meaning in their faith. Yeah, I mean, and also, like, his sermons were just incredible. I mean, just as someone who gives a lot of sermons um, uh, throughout my life, right, like, I could really appreciate a good sermon, and he really, like, man, he like knows, and he's got, like, a structure, it makes sense, it's really good, so... Yeah, I'm excited. So what are we going to be doing today? We're going to be doing something a little different, right? So yeah, it's a little a little different today. What we're going to be doing is going through one of his sermons. And um, since I'm going to guess that uh, many have not read this particular sermon, um, we're going to read it out loud. We're going to take turns reading it, and then Rabbi Rachel and I are going to discuss it and talk about it. Um, and in terms of its ramifications to our personal lives and to all of our lives, and also um, le- reading it through a Jewish lens and reading it through a lens of Jewish thought, which is which is important too. One last thing before we get into the meat of the matter is this is the first time we're really bringing in some Christian thought, right? And that's not usually what uh, Rabbi Rachel and I talk about. We're usually are trying to talk about Judaism in the modern world as rabbis, and we're really not authorities on Christianity, nor is that our faith. But today, we're going to bring in the thought of, of a Christian a Christian leader, Christian faith leader. Most of us think of, of Dr. Martin Luther King as like just a civil rights leader, but he really was a not just a faith leader, but he was a, a Christian faith leader, as you're going to very well see through these sermons. Um, he, he was speaking to his congregation, um, and he, was, he is profoundly a religious man, and you could just tell that that is what animates what he does. Um, and usually, we're not going to bring up um, stuff from Christian theology, um, because we're not really experts on that. But in this particular case, Dr. Martin Luther King is, is a man of faith, and it's really hard not to be inspired by his faith and by his words. And, and, and really, what he's saying, although that it comes, some of it comes from New Testament, it really does apply um, to uh, us in our lives. So uh, I, that's why we're bringing it today. Right. So a little bit of a content warning. It might feel a little weird to hear your rabbis, you know, talk about Jesus or or quote the New Testament, uh, the Christian Bible, but. Um, we think it's we think the the slight discomfort is certainly worth it to to be inspired by this important man's teachings. Yes. All right, so let's get into it. What do you say? 
All right. So we are going to be reading uh, the first sermon in this compilation of sermons. Again, this book is called Strength to Love. We highly recommend it. It's available widely. Um, it's it's a great book to pick up and to read. The sermons are, are short, just a few pages each. So you can pick one up, read it um, at night or in the morning or whenever you have a few minutes um, to prepare yourself for, for this upcoming day and, to, and throughout the year. So we are reading the sermon, the first sermon in this compilation, a tough mind and a tender heart. Wonderful. So he always kind of starts usually with a, a Bible passage of some sort, um, at least in the Christian sense. So here he quotes from Matthew, uh, Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves, which are, is really the, the central verse uh, of this homily. Which I'll say, I mean, just reading the first, this first quote really struck me as a rabbi um, to, that we should take some sort of inspiration from serpents in the Jewish canon serpents are are such a disdained animal from the from the garden of eden story and i think in the christian canon as well and so this quote from matthew already kind of gets my attention and and i'm excited to see where he goes right yeah i think for him right now and and certainly you know again i can't i'm not an expert on christian matters but but the cleverness of 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 a, of a snake is what is being got at here. That the snake is was clever in the garden in the same way. But we'll have to bring in a pastor next time to explain this one to us. So he begins. A French philosopher said, "No man is strong unless he bears within his character antithesis strongly marked. The strong man holds in a living blend strongly marked opposites. Not ordinarily do men achieve the balance of opposites." The idealists are not usually realistic, and the realists are not usually idealistic. The militant are generally known to be passive, nor the passive to be militant. Seldom are the humble self-assertive, or the self-assertive humble. But life, at its best, is a creative synthesis of opposites in fruitful harmony. The philosopher Hegel said that truth is found neither in the thesis nor the antithesis, but an emergent synthesis which reconciles the two. Jesus recognized the need for blending opposites. He knew that his disciples would face a difficult and hostile world, where they would confront the recalcitrance of political officials and the intransigence of the protectors of the old order. He knew that they could, would meet cold and arrogant men whose hearts had been hardened by the long winter of traditionalism. So he said to them, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he gave them a formula for action. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. It is pretty difficult to imagine a single person having simultaneously the characteristics of the serpent and the dove. But this is what Jesus expects. We must combine the toughness of the serpent and the softness of the dove, a tough mind and a tender heart. So, did anything leap up at you at this uh, first two paragraphs here? Yeah, I mean, just off the bat, I'm so drawn to this idea of opposites and this idea that it's much easier to live a simplistic world where everything, there's no contradictions, everything just makes sense and you follow one easy path. But that's not... In, in Martin Luther King's language, what Jesus demands of us, in our language, I would say that's not what God demands of us, what Torah demands of us. Torah demands of us to live in the gray, live in nuance, live in complexity, live with opposites. I think that's so much our Torah and our inspiration from Judaism, and it's it's so powerful to, to see it read here. Right. Uh, you know, I think, again, certainly um, 
this is so important within Jewish Jewish tradition, Jewish thought. You just have to go to the Shemona Perakim, um, the eight chapters of the Rambam, of Maimonides' introduction to Perkei Avot, in which he basically talks about this idea that when you have a bad habit, you go extreme in the other way um, so that you can get to an average middle. He called this the idea of the golden mean, um, that we should try to achieve... Um, a balance between between two opposites, but interestingly enough, of course, this is not what uh, Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King is talking about here. He's not just saying be a mo- uh, uh, moderately wise and moderately tender, but he's saying both be wise and both be tender. So, in some ways, it's not what Rambam was saying, which is which, which is human beings we should strive to be in the middle. You know, to be honest, it's actually more. Um, it's, it's more what uh, Kabbalah talks about, actually, which is Kabbalah is all about the balance between um, two good qualities, right? The quality between uh, harsh judgment and loving kindness, the quality uh, uh, between giving and receiving, right? Both of these are good things and should be done a lot, but they need to be balanced and work in tandem together. Um, so Kabbalah certainly talks about this. This idea is prevalent throughout uh, Jewish Jewish understanding. Yeah, I mean, the... the Balance between justice and compassion is the ultimate example of this, right? That justice and compassion don't go together. They're opposites, but you need a a really um, prevalent amount of both of them in order to, to live a full life. Wonderful. Wonderful. hundred percent. Um, and you know, again, I, I love the way that he's presenting this also as a conversation as a- antithesis. And then like, you know, that there's a conversation really between these two attributes and, and then the conversation between the two of them, the balance between the two of them equals where we should be, uh, which is so much prevalent again in Jewish thought of, of in terms of our arguments, uh, how we argue with each other in order to come to the right solution. Let's continue. So we just ended with the sentence, we must combine the toughness of the serpent and the softness of the dove. Can I just say, I really love the language of like Jesus expects, and you could really sub in Torah expects, Mm -hmm. because we use that language all the time. Like there's an expectation. There's there's a, uh, I wonder if that's, in some ways it's different. I think we would say the Torah would obligate us, right? The Torah would not really demand. We demand us. I'm sure he would say Jesus demands as well, but it's interesting if, can you just fill in Torah versus Jesus there? A tough mind and a tender heart. All right, let us continue. Let us consider first the need for a tough mind characterized by incisive thinking, realistic appraisal, and decisive judgment. The tough mind is sharp and penetrating, breaking through the crust of legends and myths and sifting the true from the false. The tough-minded individual is astute and discerning. He has a strong, austere quality that makes for firmness of purpose and solidness of commitment. Who doubts that this toughness of mind is one of man's greatest needs? Rarely do we find men who willingly engage in hard, solid thinking. There is an almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions. Nothing pains some people more than having to think. This prevalent tendency toward soft-mindedness is found in man's unbelievable gullibility. Take our attitude toward advertisements. We are so easily led to purchase a product because a television or radio advertisement pronounces it better than any other. Advertisers have long since learned that most people are soft-minded 
and they capitalize on this susceptibility with skillful and effective slogans. This undue gullibility is also seen in the tendency of many readers to accept the printed word of the press as final truth. Few people realize that even our authentic channels of information, the press, the platform, and in many instances, the pulpit, do not give us objective and unbiased truth. Few people have the toughness of mind to judge critically and to discern the true from the false, the fact from the fiction. Our minds are constantly being invaded by legions of half-truths, prejudices, and false facts. One of the greatest needs of mankind is to be lifted above the morass of false propaganda. Soft-minded individuals are prone to embrace all kinds of superstitions. Their minds are constantly invaded by irrational fears, which range from fear of Friday the 13th to fear of a black cat crossing one's path. As the elevator made its upward climb in one of the large hotels of New York City, I noticed for the first time that there was no 13th floor. Floor 14 followed floor 12. On inquiring from the elevator operator the reason for this omission, he said, this practice is followed by most large hotels because of the fear of numerous people to stay on a 13th floor. Then he added, the real foolishness of the fear is to be found in the fact that the 14th floor is actually the 13th. Such fears leave the soft mind haggard by day and haunted by night. The soft-minded man always fears change. He feels security in the status quo, and he has an almost morbid fear of the new. For him... The greatest pain is the pain of a new idea. An elderly segregationist in the South is reported to have said, I have come to see now that desegregation is inevitable, but I pray God that it will not take place until after I die. The soft-minded person always wants to freeze the moment and hold life in the gripping yoke of sameness. Beautiful. Oh, his words. I, I hope you're just taking in his words and his his language choice is just so beautiful here, and so many of his sort of turns of phrase are incredible, um, as any any really good speaker um, you can see. For me, at least, the first thing that really popped out at me: the tough-minded individual is astute and discerning, makes sense. He has strong, austere quality that makes for firmness of purpose and solidness of commitment. It's interesting that for him, being of a tough mind means. Also, solidness of commitment, that when you say you're going to do something, you do it, right? And that firmness of purpose, that you can be more sure that what you're doing is truly the right thing that you're doing, and that you're going to continue doing it if you've really analyzed it and really understood that this is the right thing to do. Right, it seems so easy because at the same time, the soft-minded, soft-minded man always fears change. So it would be easy to be a soft-minded person thinking that you're tough-minded. You're saying, I'm a segregationist and I'm sticking to my guns and I'm being tough-minded and I'm not letting the, you know, fad of the day take over. I'm sticking to what I believe and you'll fool yourself into thinking you're tough-minded, but really you're being soft-minded because you're not able to take in the information that's available 
available to you in the day and make an informed decision. You're sticking to your own superstitions and false beliefs. Right. I think that's why I get back to what does he mean here by solidness of commitment? It's temporary because really tough from what you're saying here toughness here is tough-mindedness is the tough-minded person actually might be a very dynamic thinker might be someone who is willing to change their mind because they've analyzed what's around them and and they're willing to uh, go with the change and and to change their mind about something by thinking about it analytically while the non-tough-minded person the soft-minded person uh, clinging to superstition and feeling might be more willing uh, to stay just because something feels good or it feels normal or it feels or they're accustomed to feeling a certain way so they cling to old ideas that might hurt somebody else. Right. I think the word that sticks out for me in these paragraphs is discernment, that that's that's what really differentiates the tough-minded person from the soft-minded person. The tough-minded person has the ability to discern, has the ability to take the information that they're given and discern what is real, what is false, what is worthwhile, what is sticking to exactly, as you said, what feels right, even if it doesn't follow the the facts of the matter right. beyond and beyond superstition is so it's just so important to, in, in terms of what we're talking about uh, what about the gullibility it, it, does you do you agree with him about the gullibility of man that man is so gullible is is the advertisement idea is that a good proof for you I do. I mean, I think I read this and it could be written about today. It's amazing. Like if you look at all that we're dealing with about false fake news and, and false advertising and, and social media and how it persuades people to believe things again and again and again, contrary to facts. It's amazing. I think absolutely this, this can be shown in a million ways today. We all think that we are not gullible, that we don't fall prey to these things, but of course we do. I mean, I, I, you scroll through your social media feed and you are just um, influenced again and again to to believe certain things, um, you know, whether it be about beauty standards or what it means to be happy, what it means to be successful, what it means to, you know, it's, it's amazing how we are so influenceable. Right, right. Last, I, I think on this passage, the, just, the, I love this line, nothing pains people more than having to think. There's almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions for that reason, right? I, I, you know, some of us, I think, live in the illusion that we actually do love to think. We love to think. We can't wait to think. We run to try to think. But a lot of times what we think is thinking is really just kind of regurgitating the old propaganda that makes us feel good. But thinking new thoughts, thinking things that are, are different or, or discerning uh, what is in front of us and, and what we're looking at actually is really tiring. I remember this from uh, learning Talmud. Just trying to understand the logical arguments in, in a tractate of Talmud was so difficult and so tiring. I mean, literally taxing. And it really is uh, taxing to think, which I, which I think is how do we... You know, how do we grow our ability to think? How do we flex our muscles? How do we go through sort of strength training in the way that you would go through strength training with anything else, with your body physically, but with your mind? And, and so that it becomes less tiring to think with discernment. Let's keep going. Soft-mindedness often invades religion. This is why religion has sometimes rejected new truth with a dogmatic passion through edicts and bullocks bulls, inquisitions and excommunications, the church has attempted to prorogue truth and place an impenetrable stone wall on the path of the truth seeker. The historical philological criticism of the Bible is considered by the soft-minded as blasphemous, 
and reason is often locked up, looked upon as the exercise of a corrupt faculty. Soft-minded persons have revised the Beatitudes to read, Blessed are the pure in ignorance, for they shall see God. This has also led to a widespread belief that there is a conflict between science and religion. But this is just not true. There may be a conflict between soft-minded religionists and tough-minded scientists, but not between science and religion. Their respective worlds are different and their methods are dissimilar. Silent science investigates, religion interprets. Science gives man knowledge, which is power. Religion gives man wisdom, which is control. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. The two are not rivals. They are complementary. Science keeps religion from sinking into the valley of crippling irrationalism and paralyzing obscurantism. Religion prevents science from falling into the marsh of obsolete materialism and moral nihilism. We do not need to look far to detect the dangers of soft-mindedness. Dictators capitalizing on soft-mindedness have led men to acts of barbarity and terror that are unthinkable in civilized society. Adolf Hitler realized that soft-mindedness was so prevalent among his followers that he said, I use emotion for the many and reserve reason for the few. In Mein Kampf he asserted, by means of shrewd lies unremittingly repeated, it is possible to make people believe that heaven is hell and hell is heaven. The greater the lie, the more readily will it be believed. Soft-mindedness is one of the basic causes of race prejudice. The tough-minded person always examines the facts before he reaches conclusions. In short, he post-judges. The tender-minded person reaches a conclusion before he has examined the first fact. In short, he prejudges and is prejudiced. Race prejudice is based on groundless fears, suspicions, and misunderstandings. There are those who are sufficiently soft-minded to believe in the superiority of the white race and the inferiority of the Negro race in spite of the tough-minded research of anthropologists who reveal the falsity of such a notion. There are soft-minded persons who argue that racial segregation should be perpetuated because Negroes lag behind in academic health and moral standards. They are not tough-minded enough to realize that lagging standards are the result of segregation and discrimination. They do not recognize that it is rationally unsound and sociologically untenable to use the tragic effects of segregation as an argument for its continuation. Too many politicians in the South recognize this disease of soft-mindedness which engulfs their constituency. With insidious zeal, they make inflammatory statements and disseminate distortions and half-truths which arouse abnormal fears and morbid antipathies within the minds of uneducated and underprivileged whites, leaving them so confused that they are led to, led, led to acts of meanness and violence which no normal person commits. There is little hope for us until we become tough-minded enough to break loose from the shackles of prejudice, half-truths, and downright ignorance. The shape of the world today does not permit us the luxury of soft-mindedness. A nation or a civilization that continues to produce soft-minded men purchases its, its own spiritual death on an installment plan. Just blown away by this writing. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, uh, that was my experience after he hearing it for the first time. It just, it rocks me. 
and rocked me in, in the best of ways. It just left me spirit speechless, and it left me with the desire to change, change everything. <laughs> change the way I look at religion, change, change so much about myself. So, yes, 100%. Uh, what really jumped out at me at this one was the, the sentence that um, the tender-minded person uh, uses the tragic effects of segregation as an argument for its continuation. And you see that so much in anti-Semitism as well, that people look and say, oh, look, the Jews control the banks or the Jews control the, the sources of, of finance, not knowing that, well, Jews were not allowed to own land. And so they were cut out of all of these um, agricultural paths in Europe. And so they were forced into money lending. They were forced into these other paths. And, and it, it just, it, it is so, it really is tragic how we take the effects of prejudice and use it as an excuse to, for its perpetuation. 100%. I mean, I remember we were always talking about this in terms of, of tests and how, in some cases, uh, the black community was doing worse on, on certain tests that were needed, needed to be taken to achieve high positions in society. It turns out uh, that, and, and this was used as, uh, as a proof that they, they don't deserve these positions, but then it turns out that the test itself was built in, in a racist way way and so unfortunately uh, this is, is this is just so true in so many ways what about the science and religion part is, was was that how, how did that work for you I mean I do feel you know again it's it's hard for me to talk about Christianity and Christian society because it's really not my area of expertise but you know from a Jewish perspective um, it seems like it is different at least in our Jewish communities right. that our Jewish communities really do put an emphasis on critical thought on questioning on digging in on delving on really understanding on using historical data on that's the the Judaism that we that we live and breathe um, and so it feels like um, it's a little bit of a different conversation but but interesting enough when you when you talk about the things that really hold us back I, I think from being in unity as Jews it, it really does and the things that hold us back even within our conservative Jewish community right a lot of the things that do hold us back are not halachic problems or are not like because we've so critically thought about this uh, so well, it's because we're relying on our own uh, things that we're accustomed to or traditions that we've always seen. And that usually leads to the biggest arguments because it's, it's irrational, right? There's no way of, you know, unfortunately, uh, it's, it's very hard to uh, look at it with discernment. But I think the difference is that, in, at least in historically, the rabbis were often the ones that wanted to push people to use like logic and thought, and it was Amcha, it was the people who were stuck to their folkways, as opposed to maybe what King is saying about the Christian church, where the, the people are urging one way and they're excommunicated because the, the leaders want to hold on to the, the power and control. True. Well, I guess if uh, Jews had control at some point, <laughs> political control, then maybe that would be the case with us as well. But 100%. So, yes, I think that there it, it really it really is something beautiful he's saying. What about um, here? I think something that really leaped up at me is, is, is the political situation I think we're in today. I mean, you know, where there's just so much lies all the time and so much propaganda and so many uh, people who just want to hear something zealous or they just want to hear something that's fiery. I mean, literally, fire. That's fire. You see that on social media all the time. Yeah, I mean, what a quote from Hitler. I mean, of all, of all the sources, the, the greater the lie, the more readily will it be believed. You can you can imagine some of our political leaders saying the same thing about their followers. Yes, yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, and yeah, 
I, just before we move on, this 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 line has to be talked about. The tough-minded person always examines the facts before he teaches conclusions. In short, he post-judges. I love that. I love that. That idea, I just read it, and I smile. Because, like, it, it, it's just genius. Because it's it's the opposite of prejudice, which obviously he's fighting against. And it's... But the, the idea of judging beforehand versus judging afterwards, that actually judging is a good thing. Like, like judgment is a good thing that we should be all doing. A lot of times we teach, you shouldn't judge, right? But no, like, experience what it is, have an open mind about it, and then judge it afterwards. And, and use your discernment. Post-judgment is a good thing, while pre-judgment, having, coming up with an opinion before actually experiencing it or seeing it or observing the phenomena is, is, is faulty at, you know, at best. So. Very much so. Let us continue. All right. <clears throat> All right. So he's going to switch gears now. We were talking about the soft-minded and, and hard-minded, and I think he's going to switch now to uh, hard, tender-heartedness. Right. And this, is, this tends to be the way that uh, Martin Luther King um, constructs his sermons, that there is a he, – he, he first says the thesis, right? And then he makes his point, makes, makes a point in a certain direction, and then he makes the exact opposite point – in the next section, and then his final conclusion is how he harmonizes the two different points together uh, and, and comes up with the thesis of what we should be doing as human beings. It's an amazing structure that you see throughout his sermons. So, All right. King continues, But we must not stop with the cultivation of a tough mind. The gospel also demands a tender heart. Tough-mindedness without tender-heartedness is cold and detached, leaving one's life in a perpetual winter devoid of the warmth of spring and the gentle heat of summer. What is more tragic than to see a person who has risen to the disciplined heights of tough-mindedness, but has at the same time sunk to the passionless depths of hard-heartedness? The hard-hearted person never truly loves. He engages in a crass utilitarianism, which values other people mainly according to their usefulness to him. He never experiences the beauty of friendship because he is too cold to feel affection for another and is too self-centered to share another's joy and sorrow. He is an isolated island. No outpouring of love links him with the mainland of humanity. The hard-hearted person lacks the capacity for genuine compassion. He is unmoved by the pains and afflictions of his brothers. He passes unfortunate men every day, but he never really sees them. He gives dollars to a worthwhile charity, but he gives not of his spirit. The hard-hearted individual never sees people as people but rather as mere objects or as impersonal cogs in an ever-turning wheel. In the vast wheel of industry, he sees men as hands. In the massive wheel of big city life, he sees men as digits in a multitude. In the deadly wheel of army life, he sees men as numbers in a regiment. He depersonalizes life. Jesus frequently illustrated the characteristics of the hard-hearted. The rich fool was condemned not because he was tough-minded, but rather because he was not tender-hearted. Life for him was a mirror in which he saw only himself, 
and not a window through which he saw other selves. Dives went to hell not because he was wealthy, but because he was not tender-hearted enough to see Lazarus and because he made no attempt to bridge the gulf between himself and his brother. Jesus reminds us that the good life combines the toughness of the serpent and the tenderness of the dove. To have serpent-like qualities devoid of dove-like qualities is to be passionless, mean, and selfish. To have dove-like qualities without serpent-like qualities is to be sentimental, anemic, and aimless. We must combine strongly marked antithesis. We as Negroes must bring together tough-mindedness and tender-heartedness if we are to move creatively toward the goal of freedom and justice. Soft-minded individuals among us feel that the only way to deal with oppression is by adjusting to it. They acquiesce and resign themselves to segregation. They prefer to remain oppressed. When Moses led the children of Israel from the slavery of Egypt to the freedom of the promised land, he discovered that slaves do not always welcome their deliverers. They would rather bear those ills they have, as Shakespeare pointed out, than flee to others that they know not of. They prefer the flesh pots of Egypt to the ordeals of emancipation. But this is not the way out. Soft-minded acquiescence is cowardly. My friends, we cannot win the respect of the white people of the South or elsewhere if we are willing to trade the future of our children for our personal safety and comfort. Moreover, we must learn that passively to accept an unjust system is to cooperate with that system and thereby to become a participant in its evil. And there are hard-hearted and bitter individuals among us who would combat the opponent with physical violence and corroding hatred. Violence brings only temporary victories. Violence, by creating many more social problems than it solves, never brings permanent peace. I am convinced that if we succumb to the temptation to use violence in our struggle for freedom, Unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness, and our chief legacy to them will be a never-ending reign of chaos. A voice echoing through the corridors of time says to every intemperate Peter, put up thy sword. History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations that failed to follow Christ's command. Beautiful. Ah. Again, another amazing, amazing part here. I want to first talk about what he's saying here, right, and and why this is so important, right? He adds here that it's not okay just to be tough-minded and just to be discerning, but that we also have to be tender-hearted. And what what do you think he means here by tender-hearted? How would you how would you sort of define for him what is tender-hearted? Or tender-hearted? I mean, I, th- I think he says it clearly when he says the tender-hearted person sees people as people. You know that he see they see, you see the person in front of you as a person with their full humanity. They're not an object. They're not a cog in a wheel. They're not a transaction. It's a full person. We would say it's a person made in the image of God, and it's a it's a little spark of divinity in front of you. Um, 
And, you know, I think we see this, we see this often that you have these tough minded individuals who are brilliant, brilliant academics, brilliant thinkers. And it seems like they're so brilliant that they have lost their ability for compassion. They've lost their ability to see the people in front of them as people with love and an outpouring of, of, of love and compassion. Why, why does he, why does he think that we need this? I'm going to ask you, I'm, I'm not saying that. I want you to give me his answer, but I'm asking you, like for you, like why is, why, why do we need this? Why, why can't we just have a discerning person who's fighting fearlessly for the truth, right? Since they know the truth, since they're discerning and tough-minded, right? Like why do they need to be gentle as well? And why do they need to be tender-hearted? I mean, I think that... Um in one way, it's because he's a religious man, and I think this is what religion demands of us. But in another way, I mean, you look at something like like the Nazi regime, right? And you look at the the kind of order and in their minds, I'm putting this in major quotation marks, but justice that they were bringing to society, that they were bringing order and justice back to German society after the Germans were so embarrassed in the in the fallout from World War One. And I think that that's kind of the fear of if we go to the to the tough-minded, and we just see kind of the world as a as an Excel spreadsheet that we need to make sense of, and we need to put things in the right columns in order to balance the spreadsheet. Um, we lose sight of the real people in front of us. And Martin Luther King was a as a deeply religious man, and I think that a deeply religious person can't stand for that. They have to see the people in front of them as, as full human beings. Right. And I, look, I, I think for me at least, like discernment in discernment itself. It's not that we can just think about something long enough and research it and and then we're going to solve all the problems and think about it. You know, all of humanity's problems uh, that we have is not some kind of math equation that we just need to figure out, right? Like it's, there's something beyond it. Uh, human beings uh, are not completely logical, right? We're emotional beings. We're, we're people who want to be cared for and loved. Um, and I mean, I just, I love what you said, you know, yes, he is certainly, I think you could see this through, like, which, it's it's funny the way we think about him in modern society today in America, like, when you learn about him in social studies class, he is not a religious person. Like, right, he's primarily an activist. He's an activist, right. like, and you kind of picture him as an activist, but, like, you can see through this, he's, like, a man of faith throughout every word he says, like, not even for a second does he leave his faith behind, which is, which is just incredible, and it's, I love what you said of, of, you know, he's a religious man. It's as simple as that. Because because religion religion doesn't just demand making the world a better place. Like that's not or in the in these big ways. But it it also demands caring and loving our fellow human being on on a here and now basis. Right. I mean, this is a little irreverent of a of a comparison. But you know, you think of like the Marvel villains, right? You think of who's the the villain in um for the Avengers the for the Avengers. I don't know for the Avengers. You're thinking of X Men, aren't you? No, the one with the with the rings. Oh, uh, Thanos. Thanos, right? You think of Thanos. Yes. <laughs> You'll see. This is not me trying to make a. This is me trying to make a. Um comic book reference, but you know, you think of Thanos and Thanos is, is kind of the epitome of a tough minded person, right? Thanos is trying to save the world. There are two, there's overpopulation and an under, you know, an under, uh, too many people for the amount of resources the earth has. Thanos is trying to save the world. 
Um, but he's totally lost any tender heartedness. And so the way he's going to save the world is just by snapping his fingers and, and evaporating half of humanity. Right. I think that's like the epitome of what it looks like to be uh, tough minded without any tender heartedness. Yes, absolutely. Thanos was a great example of this. It's not just about coming up with solutions, but it's about loving each other and embracing each other. And, you know, I, I honestly feel that we, we, we're missing this too often in a lot of the people that are trying to change the world around us. Like, do, do the people who are trying to change the world and, and, and sort of who are, are fighting a righteous battle, like good battles in the world, do they, do they really treat um, the other? Do they really treat the person standing next to them with love? Or do they, they, they love the theoretical other? Do they love the actual other or they love the theoretical other, right? Okay. And I think we too often love, tr- try to love the theoretical other instead of the actual other. Um, I think this is going to be our last our last section yeah, here. Yeah, but I want to just this last section. I, we, we, if we don't talk about this quote, we have to talk about this quote, right? What do you think? I'm sure you, you've all seen this um, on Facebook before or Twitter. People tend to share this quote often. This is one of the quotables here. A third way is open to our quest for freedom, namely nonviolent resistance that combines tough-mindedness and tender-heartedness and avoids the complacency and do-nothingness of the soft-minded and the violence and bitterness of the hard-hearted. My belief is that this method must guide our action in the present crisis and race relations. Through non-violent resistance, we shall be able to oppose the unjust system and at the same time love the perpetrators of the system. We must work passionately and unrelentingly for full stature as citizens But may it never be said, my friends, that to gain it, we use the inferior methods of falsehood, malice, hate, and violence. I would not conclude without applying the meaning of the text to the nature of God. The greatness of our God lies in the fact that he is both tough-minded and tender-hearted. He has qualities both of austerity and gentleness. The Bible, always clear in stressing both attributes of God expresses his tough-mindedness in his justice and wrath and his te- and his tender-heartedness in his love and grace. God has two outstretched arms. One is strong enough to surround us with justice and one is gentle enough to embrace us with grace. On the other hand, God is a God of justice who punished Israel for her wayward deeds. And on the other hand, he is a forgiving father whose heart was filled with unutterable joy when the prodigal returned home. I am thankful that we worship a God who is both tough-minded and tender-hearted. If God were only tough-minded, he would be a cold, passionless despot sitting in some far-off heaven contemplating all, as Tennyson put it, in the Palace of Art. He would be Aristotle's unmoved mover, self-knowing but not other-loving. But if God were only tender-hearted, he would be too soft and sentimental to function when things go wrong and incapable of controlling what he has made. He would be like H.G. Wells' lovable God and God the Invisible King, who is strongly desirous of making a good world, but finds himself helpless before the surging powers of evil. God is neither hard-hearted nor soft-minded. He is tough-minded enough to transcend the world. He is tender-hearted enough to live in it. He does not leave us alone in our agonies and struggles. He seeks us in dark places and suffers with us and for us in our tragic prodigality. At times, we need to know that the Lord is a God of justice. When slumbering giants of injustice emerge in the earth, we need to know that there is a God of power who can cut them down like the grass and leave them withering like the green herb. 
when our tireless efforts fail to stop the surging sweep of oppression, we need to know that in this universe is a God whose matchless strength is a fit contrast to the sordid weakness of man. But there are also times when we need to know that God possesses love and mercy, when we are staggered by the chilly winds of adversity and battered by the raging storms of disappointment, and when through our folly and sin we stray into some destructive far country and are frustrated because of strange feeling of homesickness, we need to know that there is someone who loves us, cares for us, understands us, and will give us another chance. When day grows dark and nights grow dreary, we can be thankful that our God combines in his nature a creative synthesis of love and justice, which will lead us through life's dark valleys and into sunlight pathways of hope and fulfillment. Amen. 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 Yes, a beautiful, beautiful ending to his lovely sermon here. I just want to, obviously, I think he he shows here that really it's about these two pathways, being both tough-minded and discerning and gentle and tender and loving at the same time, as, as well as being full of grace, that we combine those two together. I think we knew that, number one, from what he was saying. Right, but what was I, I think very surprising to me here is is again he, he wouldn't end the sermon without bringing in God, right? Like the, he even says it here. Like I would not conclude without applying the meaning of the text to the nature of God. Again, that that King was such a religious man; he really was. And for him, like the the where this comes from is the fact that God is the same exact way. And and I think something that you hear so often is that the. Old Testament God is a God of anger, right? And here we see Dr. Martin Luther King like very beautifully saying, no, like God is God of both. It has both and both are, are, are lovely and it's, and it's throughout the, 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 the Bible. It's throughout uh, our scriptures that this God is both loving and, um, loving and strong in the same way or discerning, which is really, really important. Yeah, and I love what that means for us as individual religious people, that God is a God of justice. God does not stand for the injustice in the world, and it's up to us to to fight for justice in a real and meaningful way. But at the same time, God is not some unmoved mover, as Aristotle said. God is with us. God loves us and is with us in our in our heartbreak. It's a, a quote from psalms that says god loves the brokenhearted i think that's that's so true and and we need that in order to sustain ourselves god is present even when we transgress even when we're in darkness even when we struggle in what we would call galut or like being in exile so that's so important i I mean for me this this message is one of the central messages that we need to hear and i think the, the the sort of the litmus test that we can all ask yourself when you're fighting or when you're angry about something do you still love the person you're fighting with do you do you love uh, if you're a fierce uh, Democrat, a fierce liberal? Do, do you love the Republicans? Do you love the Republican members of Congress? Right? Do you love and same thing if you're a Republican? Do you love the Democrats? Right? Do you still care for them as human beings? And if and if you don't, and if you, if you then you really got to stop fighting because it's actually being discerning without being tenderhearted is actually destructive. It's it destroys the world, and you might think that you're building up the world, but you're actually destroying it. And that is such an important thing. While on the other hand, you know, just being gentle and making everything uh, be okay and, and, and bringing uh, some kind of false peace is, is, is also just creates more destruction in the end as well. So it's really important that these two are combined. 
I hope you really enjoyed this today. I hope you enjoyed hearing Dr. Martin Luther King's words, um, and hopefully we can bring this as a tradition each year. Let us know what you think. That's really important. Hope you enjoy this episode of Living Jewishly with the Rabbis Rubenstein. Just a thank you to our wonderful uh, producer, Jesse Ulrich from Rant 9 Productions, and our amazing theme music from Colleen Deeker and Jeffrey Baldinger. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to listen or subscribe and rate a podcast. It really helps other people Comment. find us. And really, we appreciate all of your comments, questions. You can always email us at livingjewishlypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, 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 come celebrate the words of Torah with Marcus and Ray.